some special edition 5mm Red Creek scrapers for special people. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. Like you. Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. You're doing the edge of the ski, use the end of the scraper so you don't dull the scraping surface. No! Do it like that so I don't have to get angry. Oh, I am. Oh, I am swallowed in sheets under an ebony night. Oh, Welcome to Skiologians. It's been a while. The show where we let the intro music uh, just reverberate for a little longer than everyone else. This is Jesse Thetford, Leadville, Colorado artist. So let's just let those vocals simmer a bit. We already have someone asking us, um, did we buy that song? And I did. I went to iTunes, and I used my iTunes gift card and purchased it. I did not take these illegally like I've been known to do with various famous 90s rap songs. Uh, it's just, okay, never mind. We're not going to go into that here. This is, welcome to the show where we talk about the Bible and morality. Anyway, um, yeah, so... I have finally sort of finished, or at least finished enough for me to be satisfied, my Greg Bonson presupposition, presuppositional apologetics stated and defended book, which the first hundred pages of that I found to be um, somewhere in the middle of uh, Van Til language, and which would be pretty complex, I guess is how I would say it, describe it, and maybe like I don't know, Cy Ten Bruggenkate presuppositional apologetics language. And uh, Greg Bonson is a great teacher. And if you don't, or if you if you haven't noticed, or you haven't been on Sermon Audio, you don't use Sermon Audio, if you go to sermonaudio.com, Greg Bonson's teaching material, like all of his lectures, debates, they're just uploading them constantly. They must upload 40 or 50 tracks a day. Um, and speaking of Pastor Tanner, Pastor Tanner, if you're hearing this, uh, you need to start putting some of your stuff in an MP3 format so I can take it with it when I ski because I need to catch up on it. So there you go. Pastor Tanner uh, at uh, First Baptist Church of Leadville here, he is doing a lot of great ministry, ministry on YouTube, Twitch, various um, places, lots of live streaming, and Facebook video has his sermons. He's going through a great series on Ecclesiastes right now, and I'm catching up on that um, as well. I've missed a few weekends because of some ski races, but I've uh, been fortunate here to have a couple of snow days where I can just sit down and, and really study it. The reason I, I bring that up a little bit now is because if you are a follower of this show, you know I'm a big um, apologetics guy, presuppositional apologetics and worldviews and all of that. And um, he is walking us through Ecclesiastes and showing us how that book is a tremendous tool for demonstrating what the necessary conclusions of a secular worldview are. And I never really had looked at Ecclesiastes that way. I haven't spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes at all, to be honest. But every time you go to it, you sort of get this idea, oh, yeah, this is Solomon just looking at, oh, the world is so fleeting. And, and you kind of 
that that's sort of I guess where you look at it. Actually, when I was really little and I read that book, I just was confused because it seemed like every principle ran contrary. Like, wait, what? Knowledge is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Hard work is meaningless. And and we're learning that if it's not rooted in a biblical authority foundation, it is meaningless. Anyway. So all that is to say, Pastor Chan, I get those things on MP3, which going back to my original statement was to say that Greg Bonson stuff is on MP3. And if you're still lost as to why I even brought that up, I'll bring it back full circle. We were bringing that up because I finished that book enough to my liking to start a new book, which is the point of this show. So uh, I, I do need to tail end here that anyway, so presuppositional apologetics, state and offend is not that big of a book, but the last 130 pages or so are, are Bonson critiquing Gordon Clark, Francis Schaefer, someone else, and he, they, he critiques their um, presuppositional apologetic and kind of shows them, these are theologians, Christians, kind of showing them how even they're, they're kind of inconsistent presuppositional apologists. And um, it got a little bit, it, parts of those sections are definitely worth looking at if you're really philosophical and into that. But they, they it was a little hard for me to understand even exactly what was talking, probably good for me, honestly, because it, it did make it clear that I think this topic of presuppositional apologetics well being presented initially, I think some Christians can be like, wow, it's that simple? Amazing. And then Bonson kind of, the the philosophical genius that he is, points out that there are some really deep webs to the discussion as well, which is good because I think you will meet atheists who are are ready to do battle on that that deep end of the pool. So you you should be ready for it as well. But anyway, um, I've been waiting to start the John Piper and Wayne Grudem text called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This this giant of a text is just, it's got Ryan Cedarquist written all over it. I love the font. I love how small it is and how, how close together it is. There's lots of words on every page. I just love that about the book. I, I bring that up because me and my friend Lucas used to always joke about that, I think, with some books. Like, I just really like the font and the text. It's nice and small. It makes me feel really intellectual. Uh, actually, this book I've been really waiting to read because of how... Um, important these topics are right now in our world especially and I guess we tried to do a book project show this summer on it kind of failed sorry the the uh, the the uh what was it called the absolutes what was that book called behind me oh yeah the new absolutes that book has still reverberated written in like the 90s by someone Watkins yeah I'm not going to reach up and grab it, but that book, we, we kind of started reading. I read it through the summer really fast, took notes, and I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe this guy knew what was going to happen. And he was talking about how bad the 90s were, and basically every every principle he'd brought up, it's been magnified 100 times now. And he talked about all these different topics, whether it was education, politics, um, gender, sexuality, abortion. It was just, uh, it was everything. And it was kind of basically putting on dis- full display how, look, we lived in this world where we were kind of living on borrowed capital, the borrowed capital being the conclusions of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And now, <laughs> we, we well, long ago, basically back in the Enlightenment, we, we really did reject those, but we were still living with them, borrowing them from the Christian worldview. And now we've kind of decided as a society to live out the necessary conclusions of a secular worldview. And that's why in the last really five years, but 20, 20 years, even the acceleration just continues to seem to increase crazier and crazier, more radical things. And so this book, 
recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, we're going to try and make sort of some shows. My plan is very unorganized, but it's, it's kind of what I can do right now. I mean, I'd love to be able to sit down, read it, take my notes, and then restructure it and make cool little four-minute clips where I'm like really giving the pinpoint details. And already I'm at, I'm at eight minutes right now of this show <laughs> and you can tell like we're just gonna wander and let it go but it's gonna be a little informal i'm gonna read a chapter come on talk about it okay so first chapter for today was on the preface i know right we we actually have to talk about the preface and we have to talk about the forward and i'll bring up this book actually has two prefaces one of them written in 2006 and another one written in 1991 so let's pull up let's talk about preface if you want to buy this book it's on Amazon for now. Uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Well, actually edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Okay. So, after reading the preface, here's some of my thoughts. First of all, big words that, that stuck out. Egalitarianism and complementarianism. And I had to kind of look out, what is the exact definition of egalitarianism? That means that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. So from just like a political um, philosophy, I feel like, I guess, on initial reading, I don't really have a problem with that definition. Now, some of my really deep Christian friends, I would love it if you'd challenge me on that, if, if I should. But in terms of this book, thinking theologically within the church, the definition is probably better stated as equal in authority and responsibility between genders. And that does stand in contrast to complementarianism, which is the, um, the, what this book is trying to support and explain exegetically, um, that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, and religious leadership. So that's kind of the preface of this book, I, I think, coming into it, right? They're going to they're gonna kind of give a biblical view of complementarianism, explain those complementary roles of men and women in marriage, family life, in the church, and sort of juxtapose it with the movement that uh, of egalitarianism in the church. And again, I'm experiencing this with you. I haven't like read this whole book, and now I'm going to come in and and explain thing in con things in context within the book. So all I've read so far is the preface. <laughs> Here we go, right? I did, I, so anyway, I, I did look up some of those notes uh, because I wasn't totally sure. <clears throat> so anyway, the goal of the book coming from the preface is it, to play a vital role in shaping current evangelical attitudes about gender roles in the church and the home. And so essentially, this book is as much a tool for pastors and church leaders as it is for husbands, wives, um, single men and single women. And it is for single men and single women, too. I think the thing that piqued my interest now having Christy be pregnant is thinking about, and, and I've heard a lot, I, I follow Doug Wilson's blogs, too, and he talks a lot about masculinity. Um, a couple of other my friends um, based out of Alamosa, uh, Bo Hutch's podcast I've listened to a couple times. His is all about masculinity and and I sort of want to get a biblical found my motivation now is more getting this biblical foundation of masculinity and femininity so that I as a man am doing what I'm supposed to be doing <laughs> and kind of having that conversation of guys are you just being like radical conservatives now embracing like you're I'm gonna go hunt and shoot guns because that's what men do or like what does the bible actually say men are supposed to do like can men still wear spandex and go nordic skiing 
okay? And can they still wear short shorts? And when it's cycling season, is it acceptable to shave our legs to save on wind resistance, okay? Like, these are the concerns that have been coming forward in my heart weighing on me heavily but uh, again to be honest it is much for that conversation it's been coming up in christian circles as much as in the culture as well and so i think there is this motivation to combat the culture and also to educate me as a christian and and it looks as from reading the preface that is also this goal is we need this needs to be a resource for leaders and pastors so that they can raise up a church that understands the uniqueness uh of these complementary roles and embracing being a woman and embracing being a man and what does that actually mean by the standard of the Bible not the standard of the culture and uh, being able to deflect attempts by egalitarianists to say actually the Bible does say this and to, so they're there and I'm excited about this right exegetical stuff they're gonna dive into the scriptures um, and of course, so just a little backstory. I did. I'm reading through Grudem's systematic theology right now, um, just really like chunking away at it. And his systematic theology is really readable. It's it's actually, I, I, I it's a huge book, but but you can take it chapter by chapter. And I've been trying to read just like three pages every day in the morning, and and each chapter is maybe 15 pages. So in a week, I kind of get through a theme you know, or, or a topic in theology. It's really nice. And John Piper, you've probably heard him preach. I think his voice is one of the most epic voices for sermons. We like to listen to it when we're trying to uh, just calm ourselves down. But but beyond that, Piper, not only does he have a soothing voice when he preaches, he is, he is a, he is an artist when it comes to word usage too. And, and it's beautiful because he his words are it's not just artistry and flair it it is backed with foundational theological grounding and meaning too I, I love listening to him preach for that reason uh, because it's so full of truth and I also like reading his books because they're fun to read and they're full of truth so I was kind of that piqued my interest when I saw that this topic was being written by Piper and Grudem I was like okay it's going to be theologically sound whatever they say it's probably going to be fun to read because it's Piper and I'm going to learn some new big words that I can use and Grudem is going to probably make it somewhat easy to read based on my you know one experience reading one of his other books so there's my pitch for it uh within the preface so Coming from this goal, in the preface, they also kind of set the stage. They talk about the view of egalitarians. Um, this is that, uh, and this is obviously not everyone, I suppose, but that women need to be empowered. And the church has wrongfully sort of bound them up. And we are actually obeying scripture when we when we give women broad and visible leadership roles, just as long as they don't become pastors, then we are we're obeying scripture. But really, like the goal should be to to kind of put them at the front and allow them to be empowered and be leaders just for the sake of that. And um, that is following in the footsteps of what we see in society, too. Sometimes and I, I will come on and say right now, I have been under. Uh, in my my work uh, as as a teacher, I have had two female principals and one male principal. All of my bosses were super awesome. I loved them for different reasons. And the the females that have been in leadership positions 
have been amazing and done really well at their job. So this isn't me coming out and saying, well, I've seen this happen where, where sometimes they just hire a, a female to be in a leadership role just because she's a female. I, I'm not saying that at all. I've actually been very fortunate to have wonderful leaders uh, in my workplace environment. But but I, I do think we could all admit that there are times, I think, where where certain organizations go, we're just gonna, we're going to hire a woman no matter what. And they don't, they don't actually go, we're going to hire the best person for the job no matter what. Um, and speak, since this is skiologians, and I probably won't get lambasted because I don't know how many skiers are actually listening to this, but that was the case with our U.S. ski team. They said, nope, we're not looking at any males. We're going to hire a female. That's on them. If they want to do that, that's fine. Um, I mean, I think I would have taken the approach of we're going to hire the best person for this job. And if it's a female, then we'll hire the female. We're not going to consider um, sex as something that's going to necessarily determine it one way or the other. Now, maybe they want, maybe they feel like, hey, we've got a bunch of male staff. We actually need some female influence. So that's that's really the motivation. I think that's a little more where it was. But it, it was kind of a shocking publicity statement to come out right out and say it. And um, anyway, we won't go down that rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole for sure. So... That's kind of where they're coming from, right? The view of egalitarians. Let's continue to bathe the church in this and kind of move down there. Now, the problems with this are also sort of brought up in the preface. And and these problems are especially true when pastors and leaders and church governing bodies embrace them. So, first of all, the preface brings up that when this happens, what we see is congregations are following the culture, not the Bible. Very dangerous, right? The Bible should be our absolute standard, not the culture. So we see this sort of as a trend. It also devalues God's creation design and redemptive calling of women. So, you know, when we, when we pretend, when we follow the culture's lead that there is no such thing as gender, there's no such thing as differences, this is ambiguous, um, and this, this is coming up again later. But when we follow that, what we're really doing is, is um, just ignoring the actual design that God has put in place and, and devaluing it. God created men and women, if, if this is what we believe, that God said men and women are different. They have unique uh, capabilities. They have unique abilities for roles and responsibilities. And when it's working in harmony, it's beautiful. If we just ignore that and go, actually, God, you're wrong. They're both the same and they should be able to do the same thing. We're kind of saying we know better than God, but we're we're at least devaluing that and and just putting it off, trying to, trying to go our own way, you know? Uh, thirdly, this is really important too. It weakens families and marriages. And Maybe you've already put this piece of the puzzle together, too. I mean, when you think about it, if God designed it such a way that men and women sort of fit together, and fit together meaning we do have these unique roles and responsibilities in our marriage and in our family life, if that is so, and we decide to ignore it and go our own way, throwing out the manual, then our marriages aren't going to be as strong. And our family lives are going to have lots of struggles. You can think about this even on like a micro scale, thinking about the consequences of that on your day-to-day life and who's taking care of this, who's who's uh, taking the car for oil change, who's keeping up on the bills, who's watching the baby right now, who's bringing in the money, who's cooking meals. I mean, it's just the, the list is endless, right? And, and it's going to look different for everyone, I think. But, but in terms of like those specific roles and responsibilities, if that's out of sync, 
coming from a place of, you know what, it doesn't really matter. There is no such thing as roles and responsibilities, and you should be able to do whatever you want, even something that's against what God has designed you to do. Well, of course, family life's going to deteriorate, marriage is going to deteriorate. And here's the thing that I would even push beyond it. Think about the cultural, societal impact of that. And this is actually research-based. We know this, that in terms of poverty, education, who's going to college, um, having having a strong marriage and having strong marriages in society is critical for uh, young people's success, even on a secular worldly standard, you know. So what I mean by that is young people's ability to do well in school, then go to college and get a good job. That is predicated on them coming from a great family life and, and a supportive marriage. So so really, you know, you can see that like the cultural collapse when people bring up that term, that is actually real. You know, that when we when we start to wander away from our ultimate authorities being the Bible and wander away from what the Bible has stated is reality and say, actually, that's not how things are and replace it with another way that isn't reality and it leads to this destruction, <laughs> um, this is the inevitable, inevitable conclusion. So, uh, and this is the quote that went with it. Um, now, I'm I lost my page, but I'll read the quote here. It says, in the preface, egalitarianism is part of the disintegration of marriage in our culture, whether explicit or implicit, witting or unwitting. I'm guessing that Piper wrote that line. Um, but but think about that. So I already explained it's part of the disintegration of marriage in our culture, egalitarianism is. Whether explicit or implicit, witting or unwitting. So I think there is this this part of egalitarians within the church saying, no, we got it. We, we need to give women the same um, authority roles as men and vice versa. And we, we need to get, throw out this whole gender thing. We're all the same and we're all equal. Now, they might have like good intentions with that, um, but not coming from a place of like, look, this is actually God's commandment for us. I understand where your intent is. Um, but let me explain to you God's created uh, order for this because it's also beautiful and it's more beautiful than what you think the what the culture has told you is actually beautiful. The culture has told you that it is beautiful when we all look at each other as being completely equal. But the reality is the Bible has told us that is not beautiful. What is beautiful is that God has created us with complementary roles and responsibilities. And that includes being within the church. So when we, I think, I think that's what, you know, unwittingly it can happen that way too. And disintegration of marriage, and perhaps that does become, nowadays we're seeing as, as again, and things become more extreme, it's almost the more explicit, but maybe the disintegration of the culture is is more the unwitting, we didn't really think that would happen, right? Like if we messed up marriage as an institution, we didn't really think that was going to mess up our culture even by our own secular standards, and now it has. Okay, and then the other one, this is the most important issue, problems with embracing egalitarianism, and that is that because this ultimately is a presuppositional issue, it can lead to doctrinal sellout. And he has a quote here from Bruce Ware, who I, I've linked an article in the notes that are only viewable by myself, so it's very helpful. Um, and he says, oh, where is it? Oh, come on now. He mentions Paul and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Maybe I should read that. Well, I'll read the Bruce Ware quote first. So, Bruce Ware 
I'm talking about how this is doctrinal sellout. Here, I thought I was already. Uh, this is Bruce Ware's word. I find it instructive that when Paul warns about departure from the faith in the latter days, he lists first ethical compromises and the searing of the conscience as a prelude to the doctrinal departures. And so then I'll continue here reading this line I underlined. It says, we evangelicals care about doctrine. However, if we capitulate to the current ethical reordering, doctrinal unfaithfulness is certain to follow. The church has been called to counter and bless the culture, not to copy and baptize it. So in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it reads, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Um... <clears throat> we should do a little exegesis on this. I bet it will be done later in the book. So maybe we won't spend some time. Uh, we won't spend time on this show because I would like to keep this below, beneath a half hour if we can. But the key point is here is that if we capitulate on this issue, and this issue is so important ultimately because it's a challenge to the authority of the word of God. So if we lose this fight, we enter into this subjective worldview. And the text actually points out that this is kind of warned. Uh, this is the very end of the preface. It's warned in the 1978 Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Here's a part that, um, yeah, I'm going to read this whole paragraph. This is pretty telling. We are conscious, too, that great and grave confusion results from ceasing to maintain the total truth of the Bible, whose authority one professes to acknowledge. So confusion, right? Subjectivity is going to result. The result of taking this step is that the Bible that God gave us loses its authority, and what has authority instead is a Bible reduced in content according to the demands of one one's critical reasonings, and in principle, reducible still further once one has started. This means that at bottom, independent reason has now has authority as opposed to scriptural teaching. If this is not seen, and if for the time being basic evangelical doctrines are still held, persons denying the full truth of Scripture may claim an evangelical identity. Well, methodo methodologically, they have moved away from the evangelical principle of knowledge to an unstable subjectivism and will find it hard not to move further. So when you give up the authority of Scripture as being the ultimate source of truth, you give up your epistemological foundation for knowledge as well. And that's what he mean that's what they mean by moving away from the evangelical principle of knowledge. That means the the Bible is our epistemological foundation, epistemology, study of knowledge, right? We move away from that. What are we we're left with? We're we're really deciding to move to an unstable subjectivism. When everything is subjective, that includes not just anything we're talking about in terms of uh, womanhood, manhood, gender, sexuality, anything like that, but but think about more important doctrines. And and really what we see the framework brought up in our next section too is this is a very quick path. All you have to do is say, well, the Bible, the Bible isn't really authoritative. We can't really trust what it says about women's roles. It was written in a certain time and a context, and we live in a new time and context, so now we believe this. Uh, to the next step of, can we really trust the Bible on this or on that or on X, Y, or Z? 
And so this issue of the Bible being so foundational leads them to this final statement in that last paragraph that this is why basically the evangelical feminist arguments, egalitarianist arguments, have changed in the last decade, but the complementarian defenses have not. Interesting. So I'll close out this quick episode with a couple of... Uh, or the rebuttal so the, <laughs> to egalitarianism it sort of presents the key points and it's going to dive deeper i'm sure in the book too but complementarianism why why must this pre- be presented and how the reason it's got to be presented it, it says in the book is it provides the relational framework god designed and intended for men and women as image bearers of god it's going to glorify him greater it's going to satisfy us to a greater extent as well um and how do we do this it brings up a few steps here that I kind of, out of, out of order, but I think this is where it comes. And first of all, um, and this is that call to pastors, we need to emphasize to congregations the importance of masculinity and femininity. That does require some education. I, again, I don't think this need, this this should properly be like, yep, we're going to do a men's hunting weekend. Or, oh, sorry. I did not mean to say it like that. Hunting is good. I, you know, I'm not like anti that. But, but we can't just take culturally accepted things of masculinity necessarily we need to embrace events and things within the church that are going to emphasize biblical characteristics of masculinity whether it's leadership or bravery those traits can manifest themselves in things other than hunting that's really what i meant to say i've got lots of huntermen fishermen sportsmen in my life so i can't i have to be careful just in case they're listening i i'm not anti that and i'm not even saying it's anti-masculinity but it's important for our leaders to be educated on biblical standards for masculinity and femininity and to emphasize them and teach them to our young people. Number two, promote healthy marriages between one man and one woman. I don't really need to explain that any further. Number three, lead women toward a joyous embrace of godly uh, male leadership in the church while simultaneously directing men toward a self-denying other serving embrace of the leadership role so this isn't just a call towards women you're doing it wrong you know get back in the back of the line right like this is going to be an abusive authoritative relationship that's not complementarianism that would be the straw man complementarianism again it's well at the same time that we are guiding and leading women towards this joyous embrace of a godly male leadership in our church we're directing men toward what they're supposed to be too which is self-denying other serving and embracing that leadership role so in order for this to happen leaders have to teach what the bible says about qualified church leadership and i would add that this has to be done bravely because we are in the midst of a growing in number and growing in strength of voice of egalitarians who are who are following in the footsteps of our culture and and really being bolstered by that energy as well um that no that's not true what the bible is saying is not true so it does take a brave soul in the leadership of the church to stand by the word of god and to teach what the bible says um and so questions kind of posed when you are in a place where you're culturally uncomfortable in church, right? The quote that it's brought up in the book is, I love this. It says, um, are we going to perform a hermeneutical twist when the Bible's teaching makes us culturally uncomfortable? Or are we going to let the line loose, let God be God, and let his word speak and rule in our lives? If we deny biblical teaching about manhood and womanhood, the possibility of a definitive interpretation is lost. So is that what's going to happen? Right. Uh, and, and also, do we, in an effort to 
um, prevent our, in an effort to not alienate members of the culture, but instead win them to Christ? Do we cave on critical biblical truths in this area? Why or why not? Okay, those are kind of the presuppositional thoughts that we should be thinking as well. I don't know why. I, is that a presupposition? It is a presuppositional thought. I think I just throw in that word sometimes for fun. All right. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Preface, we're going to talk about the foreword next time. This is Skeologians, where the necessary preconditions of intelligibility are found in the Bible and the necessary preconditions of enjoyment are found in the snowflakes. Have a wonderful day. Oh.